Hello, and welcome to this news conference sponsored by Nuclear Information and Resource Service, NEARS. You'll be hearing from three speakers today. And before we introduce them, I'm going to bring the operator on the line to explain how the Q&A period will work. Yes, thank you. During the question and answer session, you may ask a question by pressing star then 1 on your touchdown phone. If you would like to remove yourself from the list, press star then 2. We ask that you please limit yourself to one question to a follow-up. If you wish to ask additional questions, you may re-enter the question queue. Please press star then 1 to, uh, if you would need to join the queue. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we will repeat those instructions about how members of the media can pose questions at the beginning of the Q&A period. As I mentioned, you'll hear from three speakers. First, Tim Judson, Executive Director, Nuclear Information and Resource Service, NEARS. Second is Peter Bradford, former member of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission and former chair of the Maine and New York Utility Commissions. And Peter also taught energy policy and law at the Vermont Law School. And third, Tyson Slocum, Director, Energy Program for Public Citizen. So let's go ahead and kick off with our first speaker, Tim Judson, Executive Director, Nuclear Information and Resource Service. Tim? Thanks, Max. Uh, this is, so this, yes, this is Tim Judson, the Executive Director at Nuclear Information and Resource Service, or NEARS. Uh, we're a 40-year-old organization that was founded uh, to be a national information and policy center for, uh, for people concerned about issues of nuclear power, radioactive waste, and sustainable energy. Um, and so we've been monitoring this, this situation for the last four years regarding, um, you know, the trend of increasing calls for subsidies for, for aging nuclear and, and as well as coal plants. And, you know, what we've seen with this recent memo that was, that was leaked uh, to Bloomberg News last week is a move by the Trump administration to, to institute um, um, a national bailout for, for nuclear and coal plants, very much in line with what we anticipated a couple of years ago. Um, we see the Trump administration really heading headlong into, a, into an energy buzzsaw with this policy, and they don't really seem to know it. The cost of, of, what, of this policy would be extraordinary, um, charging American consumers $8 billion to $17 billion per year, potentially, uh, just, just for the nuclear subsidies alone, and potentially an equivalent amount uh, for, uh, you know, for the coal industry. Um, we see this, the administration betting on old, increasingly uneconomical nuclear and coal plants, um, as a national security strategy is sort of like gold plating a Studebaker and calling it a tank. Um, you know, it, it could also destroy the booming renewable energy industry in the U.S., which is already employing more Americans than nuclear and coal combined, which means that there could actually be a serious political backlash to this policy if it's actually implemented. Um, now, the backdrop of this is, is, is this is a fundamental transition that's happening in the electricity industry. Um, you know, we have a 100-year-old electricity grid um, that is populated by, you know, a lot of antiquated and increasingly uneconomical infrastructure that's owned by large utility companies that have been slow uh, to adapt to change in, you know, in, in technology in the industry um, and, have, and have really resisted it at every turn um, in order to protect these antiquated assets and their balance sheets. Um, now, the Trump administration's proposed intervention represents the worst and most counterproductive kind of government intervention. It'll be costly to consumers. It'll undermine booming sectors of the economy. Uh, it's backward-looking rather than forward-moving. Um, it's fitting policy to benefit special interests and, um, and moving deliberately out of step with the rest of the world in the very industry that is, that is attempting to intervene in. Now, some of the key provisions of this, of this policy that hasn't actually been issued yet, but that is forecast in this memo, 
um, are uh, and it's, you know uh, plan to uh, to to assert uh, federal intervention power into the nation's electricity sector. Um, is that uh, through author through powers authorized by uh, the Defense Production Act and the Federal Power Act. Um, the, this would involve the DOE essentially declaring a national security emergency, or the Trump administration declaring that emergency, um, and the DOE establishing what is referred what is referred to in the memo as as a, as a strategic electric generation reserve, and creating a list of what they call subject generation facilities, that appears to include all nuclear and coal generation facilities in the country. Um, the memo indicates that the order will direct all subject generation facilities, that is the nuclear and coal plants, to continue generating electricity and to forestall any, few, any, any further retirements of, of coal and nuclear power plants. It also indicates that, uh, that the DOE will order the, uh, the, the, the regulators of the competitive energy markets to purchase electricity from all of these nuclear and coal plants at rates adequate to prevent them from closing for at least the next two years. Um, and, it, and the DOE will initiate a two-year study uh, to address, uh, you know, resilience policies for the grid going forward. Now, while it's possible that implementation of the order could be relatively limited and modest, for instance, there are only five uh, out of 99 operating nuclear reactors that are scheduled to retire with, to within this two-year window, the memo seems to provide a basis for all owners of coal and nuclear power plants to take advantage of it. And recent trends indicate that owners of nuclear and coal power stations could well utilize the order to demand favorable rate treatment throughout the country. For instance, owners of nuclear power plants that are still profitable have won subsidies from state legislatures in New Jersey and Connecticut by arguing that the reactors uh, must be even more profitable just to justify continuing to operate them. Similarly, uh, Excel, the utility that operates three nuclear reactors in Minnesota, unsuccessfully lobbied for legislation this year that would circumvent the State Utility Commission by automatically allowing Excel to increase its rates to recover nuclear operating costs. So anticipating a move like this in 2016, NEARS published a report estimating the cost of the National Nuclear Subsidy Program. Um, and we've now updated that analysis uh, with review from, 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 from other state subsidy costs and taking into account the, uh, the, the tendencies of the, of the Trump administration. The estimates that we published in 2016 were based on a subsidy program adopted by New York, which awards four nuclear reactors uh, zero emissions payments priced according to the social cost of carbon. New York's 12-year subsidy is, is currently estimated to cost up to $7.6 billion before 2030, and we found that instituting a similar national program following that model uh, could cost as much as $280 billion over the same time period. Since then, three other states have adopted nuclear bailout programs with estimated costs ranging from $235 million to $330 million per year. In total, states are poised to subsidize a total of 12 reactors to the tune of $1.3 billion per year, um, you know, with subsidy prices that, that fall into a range of $10 to $20 per megawatt hour during the next two-year time frame. Now, because the Trump administration has rejected the pricing of carbon emissions and other climate-related policies, we, we predict that payments are likely to come in the form of above-market capacity payments or, co or other cost recovery mechanisms. We've conserved, conservatively updated our 2016 estimate of national subsidy costs in line with those predictions um, and, other state and, the, and the state-based cost trends. So based on a range of possible scenarios and the Trump administration's aversion to recognizing climate change, uh, we estimate that, uh, that the cost of these subsidies would fall into a range of $7.8 billion to $16.5 billion per year, 
um, should the DOE continue should the DOE continue this level of support over the long term, which is, seems to be forecast by the by the longer term strategy here, that the total cost could est could run up to 80 billion to 165 billion dollars over the next 10 years. So the subsidies are are already proving themselves to be uneconomical. For instance, in just the first year of New York's Clean Energy Standard Program, which which subsidizes both renewables and nuclear. 99.5% of the subsidies have gone to nuclear, and the prices of renewable energy credits have already dropped below the credits for nuclear generation. The justifications for the order provided in the memo are also questionable. Uh, the memo alleges that, the, that FERC's assessment of grid reliability is insufficient because it's uninformed by national security threats. Um, whereas in, FERC, in January, FERC shot down the DOE's uh, previous attempts to institute a bailout program for nuclear and coal because the alleged reliability rationale is unfounded. The memo makes a case for superseding FERC's authority with a national security declaration. Um, in an odd twist, the memo also cites provisions of the Defense Production Act to justify federal intervention um, into industry during times of war that actually makes a stronger case in some ways for reliance on entirely different technologies than central station coal and, power, coal and nuclear power plants. The DCA author authorities uh, should be used to, quote, reduce the vulnerability of the U.S. to terrorist attacks and to, quote, encourage the geographic dispersal of industrial facilities in the U.S to discourage the concentration of such productive facilities within limited geographic areas that are vulnerable to attack by an enemy of the United States. These provisions of the Defense Production Act, taken to their natural conclusion, could actually uh, be used to encourage the expansion of distributed and on-site power sources and modern infrastructure designs like islandable microgrids, rather than trying to retain a grid-based uh, or large uh, grid-based a grid design based on large central station power lines power plants. With uh, you know, with with with, uh, with long uh, you know transmission interconnections to to load centers. Um, so with that, I'll hand it off to uh, to Peter and to Tyson. Thanks. Thank you. So just quickly again, that was Tim Judson, the executive director of nuclear the Nuclear Information Resource Service NEARS, and we're going to be hearing next from Peter Bradford, former member of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission and former chair of the Maine and New York Utility Commissions. Go ahead, Peter. Thank you. Thanks, Max. The Trump administration's desire to tax American consumers to support failing power plants is energy policymaking going haywire. As was said in the run-up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq, the facts are being fixed around the desired end result. We have no military crisis threatening our power supply and no threats to our system reliability or resilience that require this drastic and expensive governmental intervention. Claims that such problems are imminent are fairy tales straight out of Mother Goose. On this sad note, we've come to, at last to the denouement of the nuclear renaissance. Recall that it began with great fanfare 16 years ago when Vice President Cheney announced that by 2010 we would build two new reactors with many more well underway. The Nuclear Energy Institute forecast about 50 new reactors by 2020 and a self-sustaining industry that could raise private capital without government assistance. Nuclear costs would stabilize and fall with experience and new designs. The cost of alternatives would inevitably rise. The country would put a price on carbon. The older plants were assumed to be enlarged and life extended to support a trebling of the U.S. nuclear fleet by 2050. 
Every few months, another prominent environmentalist, older, sleeker, wiser, was paraded forward to proclaim conversion to the Church of Nuclear Inevitability, holding that doubts about nuclear power must give way to faith and obedience if the satanic forces of climate change were to be vanquished. What began in sheepish humility often evolved into the messianic certitude of the newly converted. How ironic now, then, <clears throat> that the long-sought nuclear subsidies have come inextricably linked to the preservation and running of some of the least efficient remaining coal units. Well, the game's up now, isn't it? 2010 came and went with no new reactors, but at least there were 31 reactor license applications announced at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Now we can see that we won't have any of those 50 new reactors by 2020. We also won't have the at least $31 billion spent on those 31 non-reactors, since all but two of them are canceled, or in a few cases deferred into a vague, far-distant future. Six operating reactors have shut down in these years. Somewhere between six and ten more might close in the next decade without government intervention, though only two closings are expected in the years covered by the president's multi-billion dollar surcharges, and neither of those closings is likely to be avoided by the surcharges. None of these closings to date have caused the slightest perturbation from a reliability or a resilience standpoint. Environmentalists, long asserted to have been the wreckers of nuclear power's just path in the world, have had absolutely nothing to do with this collapse. They are not responsible for closing a single U.S. nuclear power plant for decades. The U.S. has not prevented a single molecule of carbon with a new reactor in this century. Our very substantial CO2 emission gains have come about through coal retirements and replacements, deployment of renewable energy, the continuing dramatic success of energy efficiency and load management of many sorts, and great improvements in grid management. And now electricity storage, then a longer humble battery, promises to further facilitate large-scale grid operations and efficiencies. When these combinations of resources are allowed to bid against coal and nuclear, to provide power, resilience, lower emissions, and clean energy jobs, it has been no contest, not in the U.S. and not in Europe. Even China's dramatic nuclear expansion plans of 15 years ago have been scaled back in the face of rising costs and better alternatives. The energy market challenge, then, is largely over, unless the challenge is viewed not as supplying clean, reliable electricity through ever-expanding and innovating power markets, but instead the preservation and running of existing coal and nuclear plants. We have the resources that we need to preserve reliability and to decarbonize, and we can deploy them efficiently using basic market techniques implemented largely under Republican state and federal administrations in the past. What remains is the political challenge. How on earth can the Trump administration justify requiring U.S. electric customers, many of them in swing state communities, to overpay for vital electricity supplies? To meet this challenge, the administration is opening another front in its war on U.S. electric customers and on the world's climate. The administration's warning of national security threats from power shortages caused by shortages of reliable and resilient generation are contradicted by all of the bodies with actual responsibility for assuring adequate supplies. 
there are no state or federal energy regulators petitioning DOE for these measures. Indeed, those who have spoken clearly have said that such steps are unnecessary. By overpaying by hundreds of dollars per family per year for electricity that can be obtained far less expensively from other sources, the administration is impoverishing customers, cutting off construction and industrial job opportunities, and suppressing energy innovation in which the U.S. has been competing for global leadership. It is harming our security as well. The Republican Party, from Lincoln through T.R., Eisenhower, Reagan, and both Bushes, generally knew better than to undermine the national security and fair competition by using those phrases as cover for favoring friends and failing businesses. History does not remember kindly the times when the federal government was caught forgetting its proper role in resource governance, as in the Grant administration scandals at Teapot Dome and in various coal mine disasters. In closing, I want to highlight one of the most anti-nuclear sentences ever to appear in a U.S. government document. It is this one from the bottom of page two of the DOE draft memorandum released last week. <clears throat> Quote, the entire U.S. nuclear enterprise, weapons, naval propulsion, non-proliferation, enrichment, fuel services, and negotiation with international partners depends on a robust civilian industry. Unquote. First, of course, the sentence is sheer howling nonsense. The U.S. nuclear enterprise, whatever enterprise means, existed in its entirety before we had any civilian power reactors at all. It was at its most robust throughout the 1960s when we had a handful of very small reactors. During the last 40 years, when we had just a few more reactors than we have today and we're building no more, our military and non-proliferation programs continue to pace. Russia today, like the Soviet Union before it, has a robust military program, despite a civilian program about one-third the size of ours. But more importantly, the sentence stands the entire logic of President Eisenhower's Adams for Peace program on its head. Absolutely fundamental to that program was insistence that civilian power programs need and must have nothing to do with military programs. The idea that they must be kept completely separate and that a robust civilian industry must not support a military program is what justifies U.S. exports and the existence of the International Atomic Energy Agency with its program of inspections that are preconditioned for nuclear commerce with states without nuclear weapons. The argument that a civilian program is a likely and a necessary enabler of a weapons program is a pillar of much of the most anti-nuclear literature. Defined it as a centerpiece of a DOE paper purporting to justify subsidies to failing reactors would reduce President Eisenhower to tears, which is no small feat. Okay. That was Peter Bradford, former member of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission and former chair of the Maine and New York Utility Commission. And let's go now to our third and final speaker, Tyson Slocum, Director, Energy Program, Public Citizen. Hi, great. Thanks so much. Uh, and, and Tim and Peter, uh, terrific overviews. Um, so I'm Tyson Slocum with Public Citizen in Washington, D.C., 
And I've been covering energy market uh, regulation for 18 years, and I have never come across a proposal more radical or asinine than what the Trump administration is trying to foist upon ratepayers and taxpayers here. First, I think it's really important to understand that the origins of all of this really began with special interests that are close to um, uh, the Trump administration. For example, uh, Bob Murray, CEO of Murray Energy, wrote in a now uh, public uh, memo to Trump administration officials that he was pushing for aggressive and expansive use of Section 202C of the Federal Power Act a year ago. And as Bob Murray pointed out, lawyers within the White House were shooting down this proposal because it was too crazy. And so I can't believe that I'm in agreement with lawyers in the White House, but they're absolutely right. When you look at the historical precedent of not only Section 202C of the Federal Power Act, but of the 1950 Defense Production Act, there is absolutely no correlation with past usages, with congressional intent of those statutes, and what the Trump administration is trying to, to do here. For example, in the Defense uh, Production Act, for example, the last time it was used was during the Obama administration, for, where support for three biofuel refineries that were providing advanced biofuels under contract specifically to the U.S. Armed Forces, intervention was used. And so appropriations came from a combination of the Department of Defense, uh, the USDA, and the Department of Energy. And it's also important to note that Republicans were nearly unified in their opposition to this Obama administration initiative on cost issues. They said it is outrageous for taxpayers to pay above market rates under the uh, Defense Production Act. Uh, and so I sincerely hope that uh, fiscal conservatives, particularly in the Republican Party, will be just as uh, outraged by the Trump administration's misuse of, of the Defense Production Act. And, you know, and, and again, the Defense Production Act was also used during the California electricity crisis, but really as a background statutory authority. The primary st statutory authorities that the Secretary of Energy invoked back then was the Natural Gas Policy Act and the Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act that was dealing with acute energy shortages stemming from widespread market manipulation. Um, so the primary tools that the Department of Energy used at the time were not the Defense uh, Production Act, but rather other uh, statutes. And that really underscores the issue here is that both of these statutes have been used in very discrete, specific instances, either involving a handful of facilities or a, a relatively small geographic area, not the kind of national expansive application that the Trump administration is trying to use here. So again, this is absolutely outrageous. Um, and uh, Public Citizen is going to be joining with a number of other groups um, 
to use all legislative, regulatory, and legal means to fight this outrageous uh, proposal. Thank you. And again, that was Tyson Slocum, Director, Energy Program at Public Citizen. And that's going to take us to the Q&A portion of the call. And we do want to emphasize the Q&A period is for reporters only. And I'm going to bring back on the operator to explain to members of the media how they can queue up for a question. Operator? Yes, thank you. At this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and then one on your touchstone phone. If you decide to withdraw your question, please press star then two to remove yourself from the queue. Please limit yourself to one question to a single follow-up. If you need to ask additional questions, please know that you may press star then one to rejoin the queue. Okay, thank you. And uh, while we're waiting for questions to queue up, I just want to make sure that the media knows how to connect with speakers you're hearing from today following the call. Uh, you can contact Max Carlin at 703-276-3255. Again, that's 703-276-3255. Uh, we're going to have a streaming audio replay up later today on the NEARS website, nirs.org. And we'll also have uh, the news release materials there as well. So, operator, could we please start with our first question? Yes, and that comes from Bill Kelly with California Current. Uh, thank you for holding this. Uh, I had a question. Uh, if the uh, administration moves forward with this, how would the price be set for the power, and uh, what role would the state utility commissions play or influence would they have over the, uh, the uh, terms of the contracts and uh, price? Um, this is uh, Tyson. I'm, I'm happy to, to jump in first. It depends upon uh, which statute is being used, and it depends upon uh, what part of the country uh, uh, the facilities are in, whether it's in a so-called restructured or deregulated market, in which case the state utility commissions would have no role whatsoever. It would all be FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And if the actions were under the Defense Production Act, this would be a taxpayer-based bailout where it would be taken from congressional appropriations uh, or federal uh, tax uh, expenditures, essentially, or, or debt-based um, expenditures. And so the way it would work if it was under uh, 202C of the Federal Power Act is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission ultimately would have the jurisdiction to review and approve of any contract uh, negotiated under 202C. So there would be opportunities not just to, to challenge the action, not just when uh, the Department of Energy invokes the authority under 202C, but then also at the point when the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission would um, review and, and either approve or, or reject these contracts there would be opportunities to intervene in that process as well. Thank you very much. This is Peter Bradford. Tyson's absolutely right that a lot depends on who the buyer is and, and the region of the country. But if you take sort of a, a, a relatively extreme 
case, one in which the Department of Energy simply orders that power from a particular unit be bought by a particular buyer at a uh, price set by DOE. Uh, it's safe to say that I think that, that the state regulators would have very little jurisdiction over that transaction. They might well approve the retail rates flowing from it, but uh, unless they challenge DOE's power to do it successfully, they're going to be pretty hard-pressed to disallow any recovery from customers of, of dollars resulting directly from a, from a federal order. Okay. Thank you. Tim, what, what I would add to this is that, um, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, whatever the, the format of the, the, the order is, is going to be determinative here. Um, but I think, you know, reading into uh, the language that's in this memo, in which it, you know, it indicates that the that the order will essentially include, um, you know, a, a directive from the DOE uh, to the the owners of, uh, you know, of, of nuclear reactors and coal plants, you know, that are in utility service, you know, territories, um, that they will that they must continue to operate those plants. That essentially, you know, it also thereby creates. Um, a directive, um, you know, to those, you know, to those companies to make investments in those facilities to keep them operating, and that, you know, could essentially um, lead to the, the the utilities that own those reactors going to the state utility commissions um, with a pretty bulletproof, uh, you know, case for, for for raising their rates to cover those costs. There is uh, an interesting sort of backlash inherent in the situation you described in your question. Uh, when I was a, a state regulator, we would occasionally see preemptive federal rate making of one sort or another. And however successful it might be in the short run, it also immediately raises the question of what policies the state can best pursue to avoid being subject to this kind of treatment in the future. Uh, in this case, it would obviously uh, Militate toward energy policies that uh, emphasized renewables, grid management more, and uh, coal and gas less going down the road. So the short-term gains can conceivably be offset. Um, if you look, for example, where I live, at the difference between Vermont and New Hampshire now, Vermont's nuclear plant is closed. Uh, we're not subject to any uh, rate increases as a result of a DOE order. Our neighboring state of New Hampshire has, gets a lot of its electricity from Seabrook, and uh, um, they're, uh, they're far more, more vulnerable as a result. Actually, there is a little Seabrook power that comes into Vermont, but nothing like what was here when we had Vermont Yankee. Okay, well, thank you. One quick follow-up, if I may, and that would be uh, in California, the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant is slated to, to close. PG&E hasn't uh, pursued a license renewal. Uh, if this uh, order uh, or action is taken, uh, would, would this possibly keep a plant like that operating uh, longer and, and trigger a license renewal with all the attendant costs of seismic upgrades and so forth needed there. Uh, 
Well, uh, you you just put your finger on the com- one of the complexities that would go into that chess game. I mean, the uh, California has other uh, points of leverage, um, such as cooling tower requirements at uh, at Diablo Canyon that were at least in the background of the settlement discussions. Um, so whatever DOE might be able to do about sales and rates from Diablo Canyon, they can't necessarily compel PG&E to, requ- to apply for a license extension. Obviously, if the license runs out, the, uh, the plant can't operate. There's a famous decision in a New York court case from 25 years ago in which uh, the court told the Department of Energy that it could not convert a license to operate a nuclear power plant into a sentence to do so. Thank you. Yeah, and this is this is Tyson Slocum. Just also, yeah, go go ahead, Tim. Well, what I was going to say is, you know, in a in a sort of a parallel example on the other on the you know on the other coast of the country, um, you know, there's a the state of New York uh, reached an agreement with Energy Corporation uh, last year to close the Indian Point nuclear power plant um, in 2020 and 2021, with one reactor closing in 2020 and the other closing in 2021, and uh, you know, and the the expectations, you know, by Entergy and the state have been that they will comply with that time schedule. Um, however, the, there's an out in uh, in the in the settlement, which provides for uh, for the continued operation of those reactors until uh, t- you know at least 2023 and 2025. Um, you know, if there were some sort of an emergency declaration that um, that that, uh, that that mandated um, the continued operation of the plant, and this is the sort of unforeseen development um, that could that, that seems like could supersede that. And um, and, that, and that has all sorts of implications for energy policy decisions that the state has made and, and economic decisions that the company has made and, and those sort of things. Thank you. All right, thank you. Operator, are there any questions queued up at this time? Uh, not at present, but again, you can press star and then one if you would like to ask a question. Thank you very much. Yes, we want to make sure that uh, all the reporters on the line, there are several, have a chance to pose their questions while we have all the speakers um, here all together at once. Um, Just a quick reminder, uh, we will have a streaming audio replay of the news event. Uh, It will be available on NEAR's website by 5 p.m. later today. That's also where you can go to find a copy of the news release. If you have any questions or want to connect with any speakers, you can also contact Max Carlin at 703-276-3255. I will invite the operator back on, though, like I said, I want to make sure that all reporters on the line have a chance to pose a question. So, operator, if you will, just remind us um, uh, how to uh, pose a question. Certainly. As a reminder, if you would like to ask a question, you may press star then 1 on your touchstone phone. To move yourself on the list, press star then 2. Again, that is star then 1 to ask a question. Okay. Thank you very much, and uh, we'll just give a moment to uh, give people an opportunity to queue up if needed. Um, I'll ask the speakers, does anyone want to make a final remark uh, before we uh, adjourn? Okay. I'll take that silence as a no. Okay. 
Um, yeah, and, and perhaps people want to uh, take their questions offline uh, for an interview. Uh, we welcome that. Just be in touch. Uh, thank you for participating today. You've been listening to a news conference sponsored by the Nuclear Information and Resource Service. We do thank you for joining us, and that concludes today's news event. <laughs>